Welcome to the first episode ever of the Better Than Loop podcast, hosted by me, Aziz Galani. We're here today with our first ever guest, Hassan Panahi, who happens to be the host of the Loop podcast here in Houston, Texas. Hassan Panahi is a pillar here in the startup community here in Houston, Texas, and is in many ways the inspiration for this podcast. I've made it very clear on Twitter and a few public forums that the sole purpose of this podcast is to instigate Hassan into releasing more content in his Loop podcast. So thank you so much, Hassan, for being the inspiration for this podcast even existing. And thank you for being our first guest. We really appreciate it a lot. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Now, for those of you who don't know Hassam, Hassam actually grew up here in Houston, Texas, and went to high school here over at the Audi Academy. What was that like, Hassam? It was a really great experience. So Audi is an international school in Houston that's um, located uh, about at the intersection of 610 and I-10. You might have seen it on the highway before. And it's uh, the interesting thing about it is that most of the students that are at Audi um, are typically coming from families that are expats, um, that are coming from overseas. And so it was definitely a very diverse group of people that I got to spend my high school with. Um, and it was also a small class. So um, our class, the international section and the French section, was only about 69 students. Uh, so the great thing about that was that we were able to still keep in touch over all the years because of the fact that we were so close to, we were so tight-knit during the during the actual four years that we were going through high school. Now, after you graduated from Audi, you made the decision to leave Houston and to go to school over at Georgia Tech. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so I wanted to be a computer science major, even though computer science wasn't something that I was pursuing at Audi because we had the chance to choose an elective. That wasn't the one that I chose, but um, it's something I've always been fascinated with. So I applied to Georgia Tech, got in, went and moved to Atlanta, spent two years in Atlanta before I decided that I didn't want to be a computer science major anymore. I still wanted to do something with computers and something with software development. And so I switched to MIS, or Management Information Systems. There wasn't really an MIS program at Georgia Tech. And at the time, I was in a, a long-distance, long-term relationship um, and decided that the best option was to come back to Houston and to go to the University of Houston where I could get my MIS degree. Wow. So move back to Houston for love. Partially, yes. That was one of the strong factors and ended up working out because I ended up marrying the person who, who I was going out with at the time. So it was a good decision. Oh, fantastic. So you then uh, graduated from the University of Houston with an MIS degree. Uh, and then what did you do? So graduated with an MIS degree, decided that, you know, got a few job offers to go do consulting and so on, um, decided I didn't want to do that. actually had one of the faculty members at in the MIS department at U of H convince me that I should consider joining the PhD program. So studied for the GMAT, took the GMAT, applied, um, got in, and then spent the next few years getting my PhD in MIS at U of H. Very cool. Now, what does, you know, so so I have a bachelor's in MIS, and I have a pretty good conception in terms of what an MIS major does. Usually, at least at least when, where I went to school, we all went to work implementing packaged software, or we worked with some kind of enterprise software. Um, you know, you know that's, that's what a management information system is. Um, what does a PhD with MIS do? That's a good question. Um, typically... People with a PhD in MIS are studying how information systems affects organizations, how it affects the structure when it becomes, 
for example, with implementation, how it might change power structures and so on, how effective those information systems are. Um, so it's a lot of studying sort of the interaction between people and information systems and organizations. Okay, and, and do those people end up working in the private sector? Do they work in the public sector? Like, 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 where do they get jobs? Right. So generally, it's frowned upon if you join industry after you graduate uh, with a PhD in MIS. The entire idea behind this is that you're trying to sort of follow in the footsteps of your advisor and establish this lineage where you continue their research. So the ideal situation is that you get your PhD in MIS, you've done a little bit of research while you're a graduate student, and then as once you get a job and you go and become a tenure-track faculty member at a different university, you continue that research that you started in graduate school. Okay, so you graduated with this degree in MIS, then you got this PhD in MIS. To get the PhD, I'm assuming you had to do a load of research in something. I did. What was your research in? So my research was about Dig, uh, which is a website where users contribute stories and you can vote them up and down. It no longer is set up that way, but that's what it was at the time. Um, really looking at Dig and how this this idea of user generated content could have could have pitfalls for an organization because you're essentially giving so much power to these users that if you piss them off in some way, uh, they can essentially take over the site. And that and that's what happened to Dig at least in 2007, where there was a there was a copywriting there was an encryption key that was leaked, and a bunch of people on Dig submitted it and voted it up to the top of the uh, to the front page. It was removed by the moderators, and there was this whole back and forth. So I was basically studying that entire event and trying to understand what it meant for organizations that were using or uh, having their users contribute user generated content. Very cool. And then. Did this research align in any way with what you were doing outside of school, or was school your life when you were getting your PhD? No, school was not. Uh, school was part of my life. I wouldn't say it was my entire life. On the, on the side, I was um, I was working at uh, different bars and and places, you know, hospitality places where I was uh, working as as uh, in a variety of roles. One, starting off sort of as a DJ there, and then essentially moving on to being sort of the floor manager and helping manage the bartenders and other people that were involved in the in the company. So talk about Hassam the DJ. Like what type of music, um, what kind of venues, like what was this like? So this was a this was actually a rock bar. Um, so it was rock music, which was something that I was not particularly familiar with. Um, rock alternative and so on. Uh, so it was a mixture of, of some of the music that you would hear in the 70s and 80s along with some of the newer, more poppier stuff. Um, but, you know, I really liked DJing. When I when I was in uh, at Georgia Tech, I bought turntables, I bought vinyls. I was really into dance music and figuring out how to DJ dance music. And so when the opportunity presented itself to DJ, regardless of the genre, I was totally up for it. Uh, but then gradually what ended up happening is that I realized that, you know, if you're, if you're DJing rock music at a bar, you don't necessarily need to physically be there DJing the music. You could just use something like iTunes. And so I just replaced myself with iTunes and decided to focus on other aspects of the bar, like the operations, the promotion, and so on. Did you own your own bar? I did not own my own bar. Did you, do you, do you ever want to? I think if you had asked me back then, I would have said yes. Uh-huh. Um, now, no. Okay. Probably not. <laughs> so you get your PhD. Got my PhD, decided I didn't want to join academia. Um, so what I did after, at the time before I graduated, I had started a small company to do essentially mobile app and web solutions. And so we were creating web applications for 
different clients. And so once I graduated, I just decided to continue that. So we basically would get work from clients, develop websites, uh, web applications, and that went on for about for about a year, year and a half. Uh, in the meantime, I got a phone call from one of the faculty members in my department, the same one that convinced me to join the PhD program, and he offered me a full-time job at the university, and so I took it. And w- was the business not doing well? Or, or let's, let's talk a little bit about that business and kind of understand you know, why you started it and why you, it sounds like, ended up abandoning it. So I had always been doing projects on the side uh, for clients here and there, just needed web stuff done. Um, I think the challenge with the business was uh, mainly predicting cash flow was was part of the issue. But the other issue was that I just really didn't want to deal with clients, like the education involved <laughs> with with sitting down with the client, trying to understand what their expectations are, narrowing those expectations, making sure that you're meeting those expectations, and just the whole back and forth. Um, I didn't find it as exciting as I thought I would. And the other thing is that the, the work that I was doing was pretty repetitive. I mean, it was basic websites with content management systems. Um, I wasn't really learning anything. And it wasn't really challenging. So from that perspective, I just didn't want to continue doing it. And I figured what I could do is I could go back, work at the university for a couple of years, um, save up some money, and maybe do something different. So you became a professor at the University of Houston. What year was that? That was in 2000. Uh, well, it's 2011. And, and describe those first two, three years teaching at U of H. So the first few years, the reason I was brought on was because they needed someone to teach a Java programming course, but they also wanted to have a mobile applications course. And so most of my time was spent uh, doing that, basically teaching software development courses. And so I was strictly confined to the MIS department. But what ended up happening is that um, about, I would say about six months in, I was interested in potentially bringing more startup-like activities for our students because... One of the things that frustrated me when I was a student there was that there just wasn't enough of that activity. There wasn't enough knowledge about what you could do if you wanted to get involved with startups, whether it's to start your own company, whether it's to join a startup, whether it's to work with startups, whatever. Um, So we brought on this program called Three Day Startup, uh, which we did for the first time in in April of 2012. And so that sort of led me in a direction that I ended up today, which is more towards sort of the technology entrepreneurship software development side. You were brought in to teach this specific Java class, this specific mobile applications class. You started inviting three-day startup in, and and, and then things kind of changed for you. Describe that. Right. So three-day startup was one piece of the puzzle, and we needed to build out the other pieces. So we thought that three-day startup was a really great weekend for all the students. Uh, we learned a lot because I didn't know, for example, what I needed to do in terms of logistics to plan an, an event that big, in terms of finding mentors, because we really didn't have mentors in the technology entrepreneurship space. And so what ended up happening is that we had 40, 50 students that went through this program, they applied, they interviewed, they got in, they had a great weekend. But the problem was that after the weekend was over, there was nowhere for them to go. So we had no single resource that we could point them to. So we said, okay, well, wouldn't it be cool if there was some sort of program that would help people that were done with three-day startup, that would help other people that are coming from a technical background? Because one of sort of the 
underlying motivators behind everything that we did at Red Labs and with 3 Day Startup and so on is that you don't necessarily have to be a business school student or someone with a background in business to learn these skills. It's helpful to know regardless of what your background is. So we went after the students or we tried to encourage students to come from a technical background, engineering, computer science, even a creative background to, to get involved. And so we started to add components to our entrepreneurship offerings and that's sort of what led to red labs and and everything all the different parts of it you then start evolving away what was the initial reception like at the university of houston it was very positive one of the things that we had to do was obviously you know i'm in the mis department or was in the mis department and this is something that's related to entrepreneurship so one of the things that we had to do early on, which is which is just a part of working at a university or a place where you have these multiple groups that sort of have overlapping interests, is that we had to make sure that the entrepreneurship program and the entrepreneurship chair would support anything that we were doing in this area. And the one thing that I can definitely say is that they were overwhelmingly supportive. The dean was overwhelmingly supportive. Um, they all knew that this was a gap in sort of our offerings, and they wanted to promote it. So. They gave me the resources to get started. They gave me some funding, some money to get started. Um, they gave me a space that I turned into the Red Labs co-working space where our teams and our startups could work out of. Uh, so the response was very positive from the administration side. From the student side, it was positive as well. Um, the challenge is that when you have a university that has 40,000 students, 40,000 plus students, getting the word out is, is pretty difficult. Um, and so over time, we've managed to build a brand, we've managed to build a reputation that now we're starting to see more and more students interested in what we're doing. But in the beginning, it was it was definitely tough. Yeah, how many students did you get to apply for that very first class? The first class, uh, I would say about 15 teams, I think, and we ended up choosing six. Uh, since then, that number has gone up to, we get about 25, 30 applications every year for the accelerated program that we run in the summer. And describe to me what the you know you know what was the response to that very first class um what did the university think about that first class how did those teams ended up performing you know walk me through that yeah so university was very excited one of the things that the university um liked a lot about the program and, and the demo day that we had was the fact that we were engaging people that we traditionally had done had not engaged with, right? So people from the startup community, investors, entrepreneurs, mentors, and so on. So for us, it was getting a lot of new people that had possibly not even walked into uh, into Bauer Business School before and had them get a chance to see what our startups were doing. As far as the students that went through the program, um, so one way that we look at our students and how we sort of measure our success is not the way that a traditional startup program or an accelerator would measure success. So we're not necessarily looking at, okay, these companies or these teams or whatever you'd like to classify them as, how much funding they raise after they're done, right? We're really interested in sort of the journey that the student is taking. And so what we found is that the majority of the students that went through that summer program are either now, uh, that went through the accelerator, are either now working at a startup, have started another startup, um, or something along those lines, right? So the way we look at it is that as a result of going through this program, they've gotten access to these resources that made um, joining a startup or being involved in this community much more approachable. Um, so I wouldn't say that there are any particular companies that I would point to from the first class that are runaway successes. I know that we've had uh, one of the teams has now you know, pivot into another idea. And now I believe they're a part of 500 startups. We have another team in class two that's a part of another accelerator that they're still going on. 
um, and a couple of other teams from Class 2 that are bootstrapped and are still moving along. Um, but yeah, we really think that as far as we can tell, when we're looking at the founders and, and sort of what happens after they go through our program, really think the fact that they're still involved in, in that ecosystem is really important to us. Yeah, and you won the 2014 Teaching Excellence Award for the class as well. Yeah, so um, I had one of the students from Red Labs nominate me um, for the University of Houston's uh, Teaching Excellence Award. And so the majority of what I sent to the committee that made that decision was all about Red Labs, right? I mean, it's great that I go and I, I teach these large classes for software development, and those probably make the most impact in terms of, you know, getting the material into the, to the students, but in terms of actually doing something for students above and beyond what you do inside the classroom, um, people found that that what we were doing at Red Labs was special, and so so they gave us the award for, for teaching excellence. Very cool. And outside of U of H, I know you talked briefly about folks from the community started coming to U of H to participate in the program and helping out mentor or watch the demos in the accelerator. What have been some of the other impacts that you've seen as a result of having this accelerator operating in Houston? Um, other impacts that it's had? Well, I think, for one, it's given people an opportunity to know where to go when they want to engage the University of Houston. So I think one of the challenges that people have had um, when they've wanted to work with the University of Houston is that there's so many different departments that you could potentially deal with, including the entrepreneurship program. And because the entrepreneurship program is solely focused on, or was solely focused on just entrepreneurship majors and the 40 students to go through that program every year, now people that are in sort of the, the circles that we hang out in know that Red Labs is sort of that single resource. But the other thing is that you're seeing that a lot of students that go through our programs, whether it's through three-day startup, Red Labs, the class version, Red Labs, the summer version, whatever, they're starting to get more involved with the different events and programs that are happening in the city. So one thing that we really encourage them to do is, is we push these different activities to them with the hope that they'll get involved. So we found situations where students that have gone through our programs end up getting hired by startups at in Houston. Um, so we think we're, we're sort of benefiting the community in that way and, and serving as a feeder to sort of drive these students towards that direction. Now, which came first, uh, Red Labs at U of H or AllSpark over at Rice? So technically, we did by about three months. So we started our program, <laughs> we started our class in February. They started theirs in June. I don't know when their program, or May, I don't know when their planning process started. They might have come up with the idea, I guess, before us, but uh, but technically our program started before that. After year one, AllSpark and Red Labs started collaborating a lot together. That's correct. So year one of AllSpark um, was led by the students that actually came up with the vision for AllSpark. So they were the ones that convinced the, the Rice leadership that this was something important to them, that, some, that this was something that the Rice community needed. And so in the first year, it was really them that sort of led the vision of it. Um, but they graduated. And uh, after that, the idea was, okay, well, who's who's sort of going to lead this? And so Carrie Smith, who who's the Associate Managing Director of, of the Rice Alliance, was the one that sort of took over. And so one of the things that uh, came to us early on when Carrie and I were talking was this idea that it doesn't really make sense for us to try to compete for the same resources. So whereas the initial class of Red Labs went from February to May, we moved our program to the summer, which was the same time that AllSpark was doing theirs. So rather than us competing for mentors, competing in sessions, competing for our demo day, which would likely be about two to three days apart since our program started around the same time, we decided to host a joint demo day together. And so that led to the creation of the Biostar Showcase. Um, we also, in that first year, 
had a few sessions where we invited their uh, their founders, they invited our founders. Uh, so that's sort of where the collaboration started. That eventually progressed into what it is now, which is where we're sort of co-located at the TMCX, running our programs together. Every single session, all of our mentors, we sort of share everything. Now, in year three of Red Labs, it's Red Labs plus OwlSpark hosted at TMCX. That's correct. It's like you've become like the kingpin of <laughs> acceleration in Houston now in terms of all of the programs that can kind of point at their provenance is coming from you. No, I, I would say that <laughs> <laughs> I would just say that it, it made sense for us to collaborate rice uh, to collaborate with rice, and it just so happened that at the same time TMCX was opening up their massive innovation yeah. space, and so they had some extra space available. We talked to Bill McKean at, at TMC, and they let us have it last year, and they're they're letting us use it again this year, and so it's worked out really well for us. And then you won the 2016 Teaching Award at U of H, which I guess is a repeat for you. Yeah, so that was, uh, so whereas the 2014 was an individual award, uh, the 2016 was a group teaching award. So the entire World Center for Entrepreneurship, uh, got that award, um, basically for the work that we do in the undergraduate entrepreneurship program and the work that we do with STEM outreach and Red Labs and three day startup and so on. And then it's also public now. We're working at Rice with their entrepreneurship initiative. That's correct. Um, which I guess means yet another group to kind of fall under at least under your influence here in Houston. Well, I I think that uh, it's it's going to be a lot of fun to to see where it goes. But yeah, I, I'm definitely excited about about moving over there and seeing the opportunities that exist. Okay, so so at the same time that you had all of this stuff going on in Houston, we also saw I guess a mini boom of these startup co working facilities. You had Platform Start Houston. Um, you saw Surge kind of open up with their accelerator. More that I can't begin to name. How do you feel about this ecosystem now that's kind of in Houston today as opposed to where it was five years ago before Red Labs even entered the scene? I mean, I think we're still finding our way. I think if you were to ask someone this question five years ago, ten years ago, you'd probably get a similar answer. Um, the challenge is that with co-working spaces, particularly in Houston, because it's so spread out, I mean, I feel that most of the co-working spaces that have come up over the last few years haven't been able to build that density. And and what Station is trying to do now is to is to change that. But it, but it's frustrating because, you know, if you're running a co-working space, the way that you make money is by filling up all those seats or the way that most traditional co-working spaces do that. And so I feel that Start Platform and these other groups have done a lot of great efforts to try to, to fill up the space. But at the end of the day, if there's no density, if there's not enough stuff happening around that space... Uh, people are not gonna are not gonna stay there. The other thing I think that's really important is that these co-working spaces need to have experienced entrepreneurs, um, people that that have been there, done that, and and have them there a lot. So one of the things that I think Station is doing very well is bringing in those mentors and having them do office hours on a pretty consistent basis, and you just have this constant activity. So in a few times that I've gone to Station. The difference between that and some of the other experiences that I've had in other co-working spaces is that you can definitely tell that, you know, collisions can occur. So I, I've been in situations where I've gone inside the space and I've run into just different people from the community. And it's it's nice to be able to do that. Um, so I'm hoping that that they will solve this problem um, and establish some sort of hub that, that we can all go to. 
I want to talk, take a moment here to talk about mentors um, in Houston. I'm speculating that one of the larger challenges you had in terms of getting Red Labs up and running was finding a community of mentors or curating a group of mentors. Finding mentors at all is difficult. Finding the right mentors is incredibly difficult because what we look for in a mentor is not just the fact that they're willing to give up the time, and that's great, and we absolutely appreciate that, but a big criteria, which is difficult for us to find in Houston, and perhaps we can do a better job of it, is to find really the experienced entrepreneurs, the people that have done it before. So you have mentors that are consultants, and, and that's great, and they serve a specific purpose. But in, in reality, we, we really want to get those entrepreneurs out. And the challenge is that the entrepreneurs that are active in this space right now, that are actually serving as mentors in these different programs, are experiencing mentor fatigue. And one of the other challenges that we have is that these mentors might go through a certain methodology or through a certain type of program at one place and then have to come somewhere else and do a totally different methodology or program in another place. And so that can be um, kind of confusing and, and difficult. Um, but I do think there's definitely an opportunity one in the sense that if we can get men, if we can get people to come out that have not engaged with this ecosystem before, and I think that, um, some of the visibility that we're starting to see more of technology entrepreneurship and some of the stuff that, that station is doing and some of these other groups that are sort of involved, um, I think that we're going to start to see some more people come up. And, and in that case, it would be great to engage them. But at the moment, I was actually working on a spreadsheet a couple of days ago of all the mentors that I would sort of continue to try to engage and it's not a very large list partly because maybe my network's not large enough whatever the case might be <laughs> but uh, but as far as I can tell you know on my list there's about maybe 50 people that I can that I that have helped me repeatedly over and over again that have served as an inspiration to the students that have the students best intention or best interests uh, in mind um, so it's it's pretty hard to find the right people so if I'm a startup and I'm launching here in Texas. And let's suppose that I don't go to Rice and I don't go to the University of Houston. What, what, where is the first place I should go in order to try to figure out how to build my startup correctly? That's a really difficult question. And I get that question consistently anytime I meet someone outside of the universities that, that has an idea that wants to keep working. Um, and I don't really know what the answer is because there's no single resource I could point to right now depending on what you're working on you might if you're doing software you might want to consider going to somewhere like station but outside of that I don't know of any resources in the city um, that could really help people with early early stage just the idea right so I mean definitely if you're working in a life sciences uh, or something in life sciences you could eventually go to TMC but that's really for companies that are further along um, there are similar spaces that you could go to for other industries, but but really for the average person that's sort of in the community, maybe someone that used to be in the oil and gas industry that might have gotten laid off or wants to look for a different career direction, uh, there's not there's not a place I can point to. So so let's explore this topic a little bit further. Sure. Where is the wrong place to go? I think the wrong place to go would be a place that is trying to sell you services consulting services. I know of a few places in the city that will essentially come in and, and take your idea and, and you know, takes take a percentage of a company that hasn't even formed yet, but they'll have you form a company and take a percentage and essentially help you with your uh, with your idea. And I think that's that's really the wrong approach. So um, you really a lot of this is you figuring it out on your own, right? You need to go and do the research, you need to go see what other people have done, you need to go talk to people 
um, that are sort of active in this space. So I think, you know, going back to your question saying what I would do or what resource I would go to, I would just try to go meet with entrepreneurs. I would go have coffee with them. Their time is limited, so you want to be very direct in what it is that you want from them. You want to, um, you know, make sure you have a certain intention. But um, I would go talk to them and sort of learn from their experiences and see what their mistakes were, what they would suggest doing starting off. Uh, but I definitely would not go somewhere that is trying to sell you something uh, to become an entrepreneur. And I think the problem is, is that so many people are watching things like Shark Tank and getting the wrong impression of how it actually works that they think that all they have to do is write a business plan and someone's going to go write them a check. Someone like you will go write them a check. And <laughs> <laughs> both of us know that that's not the case. I'm just itching to write that check. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Look, you've got, you're about to start this new chapter in your life at the Rice Entrepreneur Institute. What should we expect to hear from Hassan over the course of the next year? So I think in the next year, I'm just going to try to focus on the initiative and what are some of the priorities that we have. So we, um, the initiative recently received an alumni donation from Frank Liu, um, and he has some, some very specific things that he'd like to see over the course of the next couple of years, uh, namely this um, new venture challenge, the E-Teams course that, that he'd like to start. So I really want to just focus on setting up those courses over the course of the next year. And then from there... Uh, I don't know. We'll see because uh, I'm always looking for opportunities to expand what it is that we're doing. Uh, I'd like to make sure that we're doing what we need to do right first. But then from there, you know, that's how Red Labs and all these other things started. Is It started off as just teaching a certain set of courses and then seeing the possibility of expanding it. And so I think that we'll see some changes in the next couple of years, but I just it's too early to be able to tell. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, we know your time is extremely valuable, <laughs> and we really appreciate you know you coming in. We'd love to see you put out more of your own podcast. That would be great. We're actually editing the next episode right now. Oh, fantastic, fantastic! And you know, and, and best of luck to you with this new endeavor that you're launching. All right, thank you.